My name is Stephen Yates. Um, I'm one of the pastors at University Presbyterian Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I mostly work with students and families or anyone else who wants to get to know the Word of God better. Um, That's what I love to do. So with that, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. It's going to be the fourth gospel, the fourth story of Jesus. So if you Turn your Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through. You should hit it not too far from there. And a very, very basic scripture this morning. John 1, 1 and 2. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let me pray. Father God, we do come to you this morning to hear from your word, and as we will discover, to hear from your word, both and the revelation of your truth here in the Bible, the revelation of your truth in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is perhaps fitting that at the beginning of a new year, we begin with a passage that reads in the beginning. Lord, would you please allow us from myself, uh, the pastors, the elders here at this church, um, all the way through the congregation to every single member and visitor that we might be able to orient our lives anew and afresh around you. Because you are the one who was in the beginning. And there is no greater beginning than that. Again, be with us. Be with our our brother Chuck. Thank you for this congregation. In your name, amen. So again, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, a very basic beginning. At the same time, a very unique beginning. I don't know about you and whether you have read the Bible all the way through or perhaps read the New Testament all the way through. Um, If you haven't, it's a great time to begin the new year. Um, though I also, uh, for many, many years, tried and failed uh, miserably. Uh, I would usually crash land around Leviticus or Numbers. One time I got all the way into Ezekiel, um, and that was very, very tragic. Finally, a few years ago, um, I actually read the Bible all the way through. I say all of that um, so that you know that even someone who went to seminary and paid lots and lots of money to be trained in the Bible, nonetheless... um, it's not easy. It's not easy to read the Bible all the way through, so I don't want you to, to feel like there might be a law somewhere hovering around in Presbyterian land that says if you're not picking up your read-the-Bible-in-a-year plan and powering through it with a month to spare, um, that somehow you're less of a Christian. Not at all true. In fact, there are some great plans that take you through the Bible in two or three years. If that's your, uh, your temperament, go for it. Um, There is no law. Um, The reason I bring up, um, though, whether maybe you have read or not, because if you would have read the Bible through or even just the four Gospels through, you would notice that John is different. Um, If the four Gospels, the four stories of Jesus, were four brothers, um, then the first three brothers um, would probably fit in very, very well at a Presbyterian church. 
Um, Matthew would be the eldest, and he would be the cutting image of his father. Uh, Mark would be the second, and he might be a little ADD, a little wanting to rush through things, but nonetheless, he would still hit all the right points. Luke would return again to the family business, and he would fill out lots of different things, though he might be a mama's boy a little bit, um, cared very much for his mother. But then John would come along, and John would be the one who would come along and say, I don't want to be like my brothers. I'm going to be absolutely different. And so we have the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was likely written perhaps even 30 years after any of the other Gospels were written. It has 90% unique material that you don't find anywhere else. Um, That doesn't mean that John made stuff up. It doesn't mean that the other Gospel writers somehow forgot to put things in. But it does mean that John was there too and decided years and years later, maybe I want people to hear these other stories and messages about Christ to fill up in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit the record we have about the life of the Son of God. So that's John. Now, because John is so unique and artistic and different and dips into different things that the rest of the Gospel writers don't, it's no surprise to you then that he begins his gospel exactly the same way, in a very, very unique, almost artistic fashion. Whereas the other three gospels begin with a very human Jesus. They introduce you to Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, this interesting 30-ish individual who uh, at some point decided not to be a carpenter anymore, and took up being an itinerant rabbi or teacher, um, mostly among poor fishermen. Um, And they make the audacious claim that he is actually the Messiah sent to cleanse the world of their sins. And they, in fact, make the even more audacious claim to say that he is God as well, or at least to try to convince you of that fact. John flips that on its head. Rather than introducing you to a man, or even a baby in the case of Matthew and Luke, John introduces you first to this cosmic divine being whom you have never heard of before, really. The Word of God. And John takes it a step further and says this Word of God is somehow both separate and is God. And it's only going to be 17 verses later that he's finally going to introduce us to Jesus of Nazareth and make the claim that this Jesus is God, is the Word, in fact, that he's already introduced to you. This is unique, it's different, it's it's mind-boggling, and yet at the same time it is a shot across the bow for the philosophies and the religious discussions of the day. Now for us... Why does this matter? It matters because if you haven't turned on your television recently, religion is still a pretty big deal in the world. Uh, Now that's fascinating because if about a hundred years ago, if you were reading the right kind of people, they would have told you that religion is going away. That we um, in America are going to uh, continue the trend of the West and that religion will sort of be something that gets phased out. Um, We don't really need to believe in anything other than ourselves anymore. 
Well, it's interesting, those pundits could have uh, not missed the mark more. To turn on your television today is to enter into a religious discussion. Whether you are watching the news at night, wondering who is going to get the nomination for president of a certain political party or not, whether you are uh, sitting with your kids and turning on the, the Saturday morning cartoons, regardless of what you are doing, you are entering into a discussion about belief, about faith. So John's words here, and how, like a scalpel, they enter into the conversations of his day, still matter. And that's what I want to dive into this morning in this very, very short series of verses. Read them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So first of all, how does this, these two verses, how does this enter into the conversation of John's day? How does it enter into perhaps the conversation of the world, if you will, of of non-Christians? Well, to do that, you have to understand the basic question of religion throughout time. It's not a question of polytheism, lots of gods, versus monotheism, one god. It's not fundamentally a question of whether a god or divine being exists at all. Um, actually, we're, we're very, very rare in our day to have atheism as a real thing. It's almost non-existent throughout history, um, except in very, very small doses. The great question of religion in John's day, and really throughout time, has been a question of what is the divine like? Not whether it exists, not whether there's one or many, but what is it like? And there are two choices. One choice is that the divine, whether God or gods or or, or whatever, is transcendent or whether he is imminent. Now what do those words mean? Transcendent. Perhaps God or the divine or the gods or whatever are far away and they are big and they are powerful and they are deadly and they are awesome and they are awesome in the scary sense of awe. They are awe-inducing. Perhaps even they are so far away as to be unknowable. They are so holy that they cannot be touched or approached. Transcendence otherness. You can even see trends thinking about the way we think of God in this category. However, others believed God or the gods had to be imminent. They had to be personal. They had to be here with us. These people understood that whether or not there was some universal great power sitting there up in the heavens, they had to wake up in the morning and they had to go to work. And they were dealing with things like their babies dying. They were dealing with things like having to make ends meet. They were dealing with plagues and wars and famine and struggle. And so they had to believe, if I'm going to believe in something, I'm going to believe in a God who's here with me, who cares, who I can interact with, an imminent, a personal God. And actually, if you track through history, Most of the time what you're going to find is every single culture says we need both. And so maybe we're going to have some great, big, awesome God, but we're also going to have a nice little dose of folk religion 
You know, whether that's superstition or sort of a local ancestral idol that I put um, in, in the doorway to my house, whether it's um, believing in fairies um, and in the enchantment of a forest um, over here, and then over here I still go and I worship this big God that's far away. Transcendence and imminence. That is the great discussion. I want to show you what John does with that discussion. In John's day, the discussion about transcendence, the big God, um, was, was kind, of, kind of unique, um, kind of under the table a little bit, because most of you have gone through school and you've been to classes, you've learned about Greek mythology and Zeus and Hera and Hercules and all of that. Um, but actually, the great philosophers of John's day had already thrown all of that out the window. They knew somehow inside that there had to be some great transcendent thing that helped explain everything. Now this is great because Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that very feeling that we're not all that there is, that there's got to be something bigger than us out there, is from God. We're just broken. And so we repress that truth because of our sinful nature. You can look at Paul's entire argument in Romans 1 through 3 if you're interested in that further. But they did search anyway. The philosophers would search in lots of different places and and they came up with this idea that, that maybe it's not a god, but maybe it's just some linchpin thing that will help us explain everything. For some of them, it was an element, you know, understanding. Maybe if I can make metal into gold or if I can understand how air and water come together in the body, that that will somehow unlock the mysteries of the universe. For others of them, it was a philosophy. It was reason. It was intelligence. If we can just all be logical and smart enough and not let the emotions and the physical realities connect too much, we will find the answer. For others of them, it was God, but it was a God, again, that was so far away that maybe if we can just get some glimmer of that transcendent God, it'll all make sense. And these beliefs swirled around and they came to be known by a single name, the Logos. If we can understand, if we can find the Logos, Kind of like the Holy Grail. If we can find it, everything will make sense. Well, some of you know where I'm going with this already, but it's nonetheless amazing. The word logos in Greek, which is the language that the book of John comes to us out of, the word logos means word. So, when John says, in the beginning was the word, He says, in the beginning was the Logos. He agrees with the transcendent argument to an extent. He says, yes, you are right. And you've always been right. There is one thing that unites everything together. And it is, yes, very much beyond us. We cannot somehow manufacture it as if we humans were gods ourselves. In the beginning was the Logos. Now, like a good Jewish man, and and I'm sure his readers would expect this from John, he says, oh, and the Logos is God. Referring 
to perhaps the God of the Jews, the God that John had followed his whole life. In some respects, this is not surprising on its own. But then John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wait, didn't you just say that we agreed with the idea of one thing, one power, one idea uniting everything? How suddenly do we have both God and a word? Something different. Well, those who would not agree with John, who, who would believe in an imminent and a personal God, also had a word for this. And the word was the demiurge. Now that's not found in the Bible. It's a little bit stranger in a way. But these people believed that, okay, the transcendent people, yeah, they've got something going on. There's got to be some sort of universal thing out there that connects all of us. But that God really doesn't care about us. Maybe that God created another God who does care about us. And that God maybe was the God or the demigod or the the second-tier God who came down and got messy and created the world. And and that God is the God that we as humans must be like. And So maybe that God is the God that we should get to know because He's the personal one. He's the one who matters, really. We don't need... Maybe we'll throw a sacrifice or two at the big God at some point. But this is the one we want to get to know. So maybe when John is saying, well, there's God and then there's a word, John's not agreeing with the transcendent crowd after all. Maybe he's agreeing with us over here, the imminent crowd. But then why, John, are you saying that the word was God? Make up your mind. But that is the beauty of what John is doing. What John is saying is that God Himself, the one God, the only God, is somehow uniquely and wonderfully both the answer to this religious argument and this religious argument, to the the transcendent crowd and the imminent crowd, to the people that believe God's got to be big and the people who believe He must be small. John says there's an answer. And that answer is Jesus. That answer is the Word. That answer is somehow a God who could be both. A God who at once and the same is transcendent and imminent, who is in fact three and yet one. With no ranking. No big God, little God. No choice I have to make. Now that's beautiful. It's beautiful because, to be honest with you, our culture is still asking John's same questions today. Now we don't ask it necessarily in the same way, hopefully except in the word logo that we find in um, fast food restaurants and in Walmart. Um, We don't really find the logos anymore. But just think about how our culture looks for answers and how some within our culture might look for a single thing. Man, if we could just have that guy in the office, in the Oval Office, everything will be okay. 
the political philosophy. And if we could just all get along and believe in love, everything would be okay. Maybe, I, I don't actually know, but, but being this close to the army base, and then again, back in Las Cruces, some of you might be engineers or physicists. I mean, you think about technology and the pursuit of string theory, the pursuit of um, some single answer that could explain everything for all of us. We're still asking this question. But you all know we're also asking this question, the imminent question. We're asking, what would God care about me for? Me, I, I want to do what I want to do, and I want a God who's going to be okay with what I'm doing. The buzzword of the times is that you do you. You do what's best for you, what makes you happy, as long as it doesn't infringe upon me. So for John to say both at the same time that God is transcendent and imminent is also today the same answer for our culture. You are right, there is an answer to everything we say to our culture. But that answer also cares about you. You're right, there is someone who wants to know you. But he also knows everyone and is going to call you to account. God must be both. John here enters into the religious debate of his day. But here's a problem, something that we can do. We're really, really good as Christians of having discussions like this about them, out there. Talk about our culture and how our culture is impacted by the Word, how uh, the Word speaks to our culture. But what about us? Because you see, in many respects, we still struggle with this debate. Throughout Christian history, on one hand, our theology has agreed with John. Our theology calls this the two natures of Jesus. The, the special, fun theological name for it is the hypostatic union, the idea that at once and the same, Jesus is both ultimate and divine and omnipotent and at the same time human and personal. And we believe this. Some of you grew up learning the catechisms of the Presbyterian Church. You know Westminster 21 that specifically says that He has always and will continue to be both God and man forever. Yet we wrestle. And we wrestle by emphasizing one or the other. Throughout Christian history, we've done this. In the very beginning of the gospel, John likely wrote this gospel because people were still wrestling with the idea of Jesus being God. They, they knew Jesus was a man. They knew He was the Messiah. But John is the only gospel who articulates over and over and over and over again in terminology that if it's not true is absolutely blasphemous that Jesus is God Himself. Now, a couple hundred years later, though, the great struggle was whether Jesus was a man or not. Cults had arisen that believed, well, maybe Jesus just sort of materialized 
and was on the earth for two or three years. One even believed that Jesus actually didn't really touch anything physical, so he sort of hovered on the ground like a superhero. But then go a couple hundred years later again. And you again find people struggling with Jesus being God, being divine, wanting to encounter Jesus in some mystical way. Fast forward a couple hundred years again, and you actually find why people started praying to Mary and to the saints. Because they believed Jesus to be so divine, so great, so huge, so transcendent, they needed somebody else to help carry their prayers to Him. Somebody softer. Somebody more imminent. The Reformation kept this going. We have a great, wonderful, sovereign, Calvinistic God. And we struggle sometimes with the idea that Jesus is also present and personal. And today, at least in wide evangelicalism, I think we're back to the human question again. We like a human Jesus today. We like a Jesus who can stand up for our causes. A Jesus who can be an advocate for our positions. We like a Jesus that cares about the poor and the needy. We like a Jesus that can be featured on CNN and not offend anybody. We like a Jesus who um, can sort of overlook, if you will, our own sin and look first at the sins of the people that offend us. So John's question is a question for us as well. Can we rightly believe the same argument that John is calling non-Christians to believe? An argument that says that God in the person of Jesus Christ is both transcendent and imminent. He is both holy and awesome and also personal. How do we do that? Well, John gives us an answer again here back in the text. So many things out of so few words. When John says, in the beginning was the word, those of us who actually have a biblical background should go somewhere. Genesis 1, in the beginning. Probably one of the first verses many of you ever memorized as children. We have a category for the transcendence of God because we can understand a time when there was not. When it was only God and God Himself was hanging out and everything was great before He created anything. And yet John keeps going, introducing the word the Word being with God, and we pause. Because maybe we don't have a category. Back in Genesis, back in the great and powerful moments for a personal God. John gives us one. With. Maybe you stumble over that. Maybe you you, you very, very quickly want to see the end of that. The word is God. But the word with might actually be the most powerful word in this entire verse. Because the word with here does not simply denote physical presence. I mean, think about it. Today, we are with one another here in this room. But we also use the word with for a number of other things. My wife often at the dinner table goes, Steve, are you with me? 
I've zoned out, I'm thinking about something else, I'm checking my phone, I'm just kind of gazing at our baby, and you know, I've completely missed the last five minutes of her conversation. Are you with me? Hopefully many of you are still with me today in that sense. In the same way, we actually use it even more powerfully. We're expecting our second child, um, and uh, one kind of rather archaic way of talking about my wife being pregnant is to say that she is with child. Now she is, of course, physically in connection with our child. Our child is not really awake in that much of a sense. We feel a little bit of kicking, but you don't have the sort of are you with me sense. But oh, the intimacy. Something that I as a man, as much as I try to connect with my unborn child, cannot do. Because my wife and my baby are with each other all of the time. We forget that Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have spent more time together than anything in existence. We can think about eternity future, maybe, because none of us are dead yet. So we can understand this idea that that we're going to keep going and going and everything's going to keep going and going forever. But we really can't wrap our brain around the idea that everything's been going on forever in that direction as well. For however long the universe has been here, an infinity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were together. And they were not together in some catatonic state where they didn't have anything to do, so they just sat there. Scripture rather describes their relationship as it has always been and will always be as one of perfect community, perfect love, perfect service towards one another. It is is as if forever God the Father has been encouraging God the Son and God the Son has been sending God the Spirit, and God the Spirit has been reflecting glory back at God the Father and God the Son, and they have perpetually forever been doing this dance. So when we read that Jesus was with God, that the Word was with God, we are not picturing just some stoic, transcendent idea. We are picturing A personal one, an imminent one. At the same time, no one can read Genesis chapter 1 where we see an entire universe come into motion and believe that that type of relationship is only imminent. This is a God who sends universes into motion, who creates planets, who breathes life, who causes cataclysmic changes to occur. We see later, Paul will talk about this in the book of Colossians, that it is in fact only by the Son, by Jesus, that anything holds together at all. Which again, for those of you who might be chemists or physicists, you can imagine the the strong and weak forces of atoms just absolutely breaking apart, everything losing cohesion. The amount of power present in those words in the beginning drives us to transcendence. The amount of intimacy present in that word with draws us back into imminence. We have both and. 
our God in three persons is both omnipotent and powerful and personal and is the answer to all of these questions that all of us are asking. So that leads us, finally then perhaps, to the questions maybe we aren't asking that we should. And this is what I'd love for you to go away with. Sometimes when you hear a sermon, you are, are simply impacted. Uh, maybe you have been. That, that's great. But, but other times when you hear a sermon, it's not the Holy Spirit working on you in that moment, but it's the conversations that you bring up at the dinner table. It's the thing that bugs you on the way home. It's the thing that your six-year-old brings up in the car and asks you about as a parent that you're very, very afraid of because you don't have an answer to. And I think those questions for us out of John, out of this discussion of imminence and transcendence are twofold. First, I want to ask you, what questions are the people in your orbit asking? Now, we just said this discussion about imminence and about transcendence has been going on throughout time and even today there are multiple different people and different religions and different sides that, that take different emphases on this. But for you, what questions are the people in your life asking? For myself, it's mostly a question of imminence. The people around me, the people I interact with, largely grew up Christian. But their view of God has been so skewed by the fall that they see Michelangelo. They see a God with a great gray beard on a mighty throne with a whip, perhaps, wishing to beat them into submission for their legalism. They need Jesus to teach them to call him Daddy. For others of you, it might be transcendence. You have people around you who are asking the big questions about life, and you need to be able, in a way that doesn't shoot down or belittle their conversations, to point them to the transcendent God. If you have friends, for instance, who really are interested in evolution, great! Don't get in fights with them about minutiae Talk to them about how transcendent God must be to form a world and build a discussion around that. If you have friends who are wrestling with God hating them, talk to them about a personal Jesus. Yeah, you get God being wrathful, good, wonderful. You get half the story. Let's talk about the other half. If you are not asking these questions about the people around you, if you're not aware of their questions, then what you end up doing, what I end up doing, is giving cookie-cutter answers to questions they're not asking. You're not doing what John does. What if John had begun his book and said, in the beginning, Jesus... And then he died. Amen. Close the book. 
What if he had left out care for individuals who didn't already have a biblical background? What if he had left out explanation about the Word and just called Jesus the Word throughout? Where would we be left with? The second question I want you to ask is, is turn it on yourself. If throughout Christian history, we've been fighting this, this balance and we've emphasized Jesus as either divine or as human, as either transcendent or imminent, what do you do? Now, you could, you could emphasize one or the other for any number of reasons. Perhaps it's your tradition. We're Presbyterians. For the most part, we end up on the transcendent side over here. God is holy, and He is great, and He is awesome, and He is not to be approached with abandon. Yet we need to meet Jesus who ran to His Father and told many, many stories of a God who bent down and embraced His fallen people. Maybe that plays itself out for you that you have so many traditions built up and so many ideas built up that that you can't even really pray because you feel like you're not praying well enough. You feel like you're not worshiping well enough to actually worship such a wonderful transcendent God. You need to know that your God is imminent. For others of you, you maybe you grew up, you were, you know, one of the children of the 60s or the 90s, um, and you love calling Jesus your bud and your friend. Um, and you connect with all the praise and worship in the world, um, and you pray all the time, and yet your God doesn't have any bearing on actually how you live. For you, you and Jesus are great. You make it to church, you don't make it to church, it's okay. You sin, you don't sin, it's okay. You need to meet Jesus, who yes, said I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but through the world might be saved. And yet also says later, wait, I'm coming back and I'm riding a white horse with a sword and fire in my eyes. You need to meet the transcendent God of the universe who literally is so glorious that without Jesus, we could not stand in His presence. His very glory would destroy us. We need both. And we have been given both in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John begins with this because if you don't, you can ride your entire Christian life on one of the two sides of the road. You can ride your whole Christian life sitting in the ditch of transcendence and not loving your great God. You can ride the entire Christian life in the ditch of not being in awe of your great God. And you can do both and not show a world out there that we have the answer to the question that they're asking. Let's pray. Eternal Word, but also eternal brother and friend, Jesus. King of the universe, 
and the one closest to our hearts. Would you please come and work in the intricacies and the complexities of our stories that we might know you fully. That we might know what the Apostle Paul prays, the height and the depth and the length and the width of your love that you might extend that forth in us so that we might see it holistically. That we might see you enthroned and praise salvation belongs to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And we might also be embraced by you and learn to call your Father Dad. Help us. There is no program, there is no Bible study that can get us here. We need you, Jesus. There is no prayer practice. There is no amount of emotional worship that can get us here. We need you, Jesus. Come, we pray. We ask you to do the very thing you've already promised to do, which is to be among us, both here and when we go out, among us in your fullness, in your transcendence, in your imminence. Eternal word, we thank you for loving us so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.